0: Thank you very much for your welcome. Uh, I hope you can all hear me okay. I'm, I'm kitted out with a microphone, and I always live in terrible fear of microphones. Why? Because one Sunday, I was asked to preach at a church, and they strapped me up with this microphone. And we took our our eldest daughter there, and, and uh, she was sat there, and she... Um, I suddenly noticed, while I'm singing or while I'm preaching, that she's sort of doing her own little modern jive in there, and uh, I wondered why, until the guy who was operating the sound equipment came down and said, look, um, I think what we're going to have to do, you're going to have to just raise your voice and do without the microphone, because what's happening is, somewhere along the line, we're picking up Radio 1. And what she was hearing was Radio 1 and not my voice. Uh, so I, I, I am terrified of microphones. I wonder if we can just pray together right where we are now. And Lord, we ask you just to open up these words to us and to make it clear. Father, very often we look at the Bible and, and really struggle to understand. And your Spirit comes and just opens up these words. Father, make them applicable to each one of us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do a quote uh, by a man named Timothy Keller, and it, it says these words, The Bible is a history of God offering His grace to people who do not deserve it, nor seek it, nor ever fully appreciate it, after they've they've been saved by it. Now, after I read that, I began to question, how much do I really appreciate what God has done for me in Jesus? And if you're like me, I I guess there are times when it's, it's more than likely that we get wrapped up in groaning About things, about the side of life that we're on, about things that's happening. And we fail to realize that glorious hope that is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. That's our inheritance. And I'm saying groaning because I I looked at a title for this message and I gave it a title of From Groaning to Glory. Now, isn't that really encouraging stuff? From Groaning to Glory. You know, the letter of Paul to the church uh, in in Rome is unlikely, unlike any other New Testament letter. It doesn't address any particular problem. All the other letters address problems that are in the church. But this doesn't. What does it do? Paul seeks to encourage people, the church that's in Rome... And as such, it's a, it's a letter to all of us, everywhere. To, to the church here at Walton, to the, our church in, in Cornerstone, every church. And it's been called, the, the letter to the Romans, it's been called the most profound work in history. Christ's body, the church, you, me, all made up of different members, lives in a broken and damaged world. And it causes us to come face to face with all kinds of anxiety. Things that we can't begin to either feel or express in, in particular terms. It's just so difficult. And our passage starts with Paul uh, it starts with a consideration. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And I want us to look at a few points about this this body, this this church that we're in, this this body together, whether it be worldwide or whether it just be local, and the church in Rome consists consisted of Gentiles, Jews, and all kinds of people. It had different cultures, it had different habits, and and just like today, I'm sure I'm sure that if I did a little questionnaire now, uh, got you behind the screen somewhere so nobody could. Sort of hear what you were saying to me and listened to what you were saying and said, You know, what do you think about church right now? What do you think about the world right now? What do you think about your life right now? You see, the challenge placed before the church in Rome was exactly the same challenge that is placed before the church today here in this church and that challenge is preserving the oneness in christ that we have preserving the oneness in christ because our churches have filled back in cornerstone now we've just seen since the the whole procedure with hong kong and china we've seen a huge influx of chinese people and it, it's, it's really, we, we've got an English, English class classes going to try and teach these people English because they're struggling to express the terms. What you do see in church now in Cornerstone on the morning is these people, these people from Hong Kong, whilst this, the things are on the screen, they take out the camera and take a photo of the screen so that they can go back and translate it into a language that they understand. But the Christians just the same. And the challenge faced before us is to cross that culture. And there are churches and Christians today who are absent of God's Spirit. They've lost the sight of God's glory. The courage is all gone. And with it, the joy, peace, and security of mind. In short, they are shadows of what they should be. And Romans 8 reminds us that the sufferings, such as illness, disappointment, hardship, worry, different opinions, they're not just overshadowed by the future of glory that is in ours in Christ, but not even worthy of comparison, Paul says. So that's the body's sickness. The church body, that's the sickness that we face. The expectation of the body. You know, there are times when our troubles feel too heavy a load to take upon our shoulders. Have you ever been like that? You know, there are times when you think, oh yeah, if only this hadn't happened and, and where's God in all this? And so much seems to get on our, our shoulders. But Paul encourages us to look beyond the present, to the future glory you and I can expect. To look ahead, see what's there. But what do we do? Well, the Scripture tells us that the church in Rome is groaning for an end to the circumstances that they're faced with. And just like the church today, and we, we hear, pray for just this evening just all around us creation is groaning under the pressures that it's placed look at the 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 all around this world we see suddenly fires that spring up because of the heat we see earthquakes happening we see all kinds of things and nature is groaning under the pressure and, and the scripture in romans says this in verses 19 and 21 and ignorance in all the mishaps of today, what we call natural disasters. But sin has caused all creation to fall from that perfect state. When God created it, He said it is good. And yet, it's fallen from that position. And creation awaits the day, expectantly, the Scripture tells us, when it will be liberated and transformed. That's just what creation's feeling Matthew Henry puts it in this way, there is something to come, something behind the curtain, that will outshine all. It shall be revealed in us, not only revealed to us, but revealed in us, to be enjoyed. The kingdom of God is within you and will be so to eternity. I find them quite powerful words that Uh, He's speaking about something that he obviously was expecting when he wrote those words and he feels that it's going to happen. There's a hope in every Christian's life. A hope. What's a hope? Well, let me ask you a question. Are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas? I I, I understand, if my maths is correct, that there are 73 sleeps to Christmas. 73 sleeps to Christmas. Christmas is coming. Is it me? Or does it seem to come earlier each year? I've only to turn my television on, and if I put on uh, Freeview, one particular channel in Freeview, which is called Christmas, it's full all through the day. That you really must get a life. It, I, it's full the whole day of Christmas films. We spend our time picking out the people who's appeared in the wasn't he in that film playing a part in that and, and there she is again. She should be in and we can see people constantly appearing in these films. It truly feels as though Christmas has arrived. No wonder the hope of Christmas seems to be lost. Christians wait in the hope of verse 20 out of that passage. They, they wait in the hope. And it says that hope that's already here, like we think Christmas is here, is not hope at all. We don't hope for things that we've got. We hope for things that we haven't got that's not happened. Hope is a strange thing. In the early 1800s, Speculation boiled over as to the exact day when Christ would return. Among the speculators was one man called William Miller. He lived in New York. He announced that according to his careful calculations, Christ would return to earth on October the 22nd, 1844. And when that morning dawned, there was a sense of forbidding it fell over all the whole of New England. People gathered on mountain tops, and into churches. Normal activities ceased as everyone awaited the rending of the skies and the end of the world. Well, when the day passed uneventfully, many Christians obviously grew disillusioned. And the unsaved became cynical, and the following years from that saw a decline in conversions to the Christian faith. The event became known as the Great Disappointment. Once hope arrives, it stops being hope. And verse 24 and 25 put it clearly, so clearly, that we had read to us, But hope that is not seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Isn't it true that over the past week or so, we've seen yet further examples of man's inhumanity to man, illustrating once again the brokenness of this world? Along with all creation, we groan for this hope of freedom from the opposition and the brokenness of this world. And I want to just point something out. Notice that the scripture says, we groan. It doesn't say we mourn. We groan. Mourn. I looked it up in the dictionary, Mourn tends to create the picture of someone making a complaint in an unhappy voice. God, I'm talking to a lot of people who've never done that. Usually it's about something that doesn't seem important to other people. But groan," translated by the Cambridge Dictionary, is a deep, long sound showing great pain and unhappiness. You know, we groan about the state of things, in our prayers. We struggle to pray for all these things that's happening over the seas. So many things in so many different countries. And look at our country. We see people walking about with knives. They go out on a night with a knife. They go out with a gun. And they willingly take the life of their fellow man. Oh, how we need help. The prayers that we give crying out to god lord send your peace and we groan we in great pain and unhappiness but we need to be encouraged because we have great help in these things we have so much help and the body's assistance this body that we have the church we have assistance the bible tells christians that They have two privileges to assist as we wait in hope. We don't just sit there on our own. We have two privileges. We have the help and the support of the Holy Spirit. As our souls pray in great pain for the coming of the perfect kingdom, God graciously gives us the aid of the Holy Spirit in prayer. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. But furthermore than that, there's much more. The Lord Jesus himself intercedes for us in heaven. Romans 8, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, where is this Jesus? He is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And if you and I are truly honest, there are times when we, we come to prayer and we are so weak, so ineffective. Our prayers struggle to come out of our mouths. We find it so hard. Our thoughts wander and we just don't feel like praying and it's on those occasions that whatever we utter the Holy Spirit is there alongside us making it all right with God changing everything he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God You know, there's a great need for encouragement in prayer for the body of Christ, for the church. And we, we get that encouragement from the body's steadfast relationship with God. We sang the earlier on about the love of God. And the uh, one-time pastor of Cornerstone, Peter Lewis writes of verse 28 of Romans 8, he says this, I earlier described this chapter as being Mount Everest in the Himalayan Heights of, of the apostles' thoughts and teaching. The only disadvantage with such a metaphor is that the Himalayas can be very bleak and Mount Everest, the bleakest place of all. Here, however, we have a chapter and a teaching which is immeasurably comforting to the believer, and the higher you climb, the more you rejoice in the sunshine of the Father's love, the more exhilarating and oxygen-rich oxygen, uh, the air of spiritual comfort and assurance, and the more breathtaking the view of God's eternal love and God's eternal plan. Chapter 8 has declared the security that we have, that you and I, if we're in Christ Jesus, we are permanently safe, no matter what the frail framework of today's culture may suggest. And you and I wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons and the redemption of our bodies when Christ either comes again or calls us home and we go to be with him. Verse 15 tells us that we've been adopted by sons, as sons. And verse 16 tells us that we are God's children. But the time is yet to come in this closely bonded relationship when we'll be revealed as his children and conformed to the likeness of God's Son. It's in verse 28 that we begin to look heavenward, not our strength but in the glory of our God. Here Paul takes us to heights unequaled anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul knew his own experiences. Something of the trials and tribulations of being a Christian, and maybe you today are experiencing some of those things. One of the most difficult things in my life when I, was, uh, when I became a Christian as an atheist, I'd been an atheist all my life. I, had a, I came from a long line of atheists. I had a proud history of atheists. And I was a professional rugby league player. And the hardest thing in my life was to go and tell the players, and when you're talking to a, an 18-stone, six-foot-odd prop forward, and said to him, last night... I committed my life to Christ. Then you know what fear is. There was tribulations. I, 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 I had fear, but I knew that I needed to confess what had happened to me. And there are times in our lives when we see the situations around us today and sometimes that affect us directly, we cry out, where is God in all this? And verse 28 provides us with this glorious answer, and we know that in all things God. Notice that Paul doesn't say, as some versions as many people put it, all things work together for good. Because that's like saying, well, everything works together for the best in our lives. It's as if things automatically in themselves always work for good. That's what the, 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 you're saying when you say that. But Paul says, in all things, God works for our good. There are things in our life, in this fallen world, which are themselves are destructive, bringing setback are bringing ruin, bringing pain, bringing failure. But when God is in a situation working for the good of those who love him, then strange and wonderful things began to begin to happen. And when life is doing its worst, God is doing his best. God works in the lives of those who love him. God is at work for the good of his people. God is good and all his works are expressions of his goodness and are calculated to bring about the best for his children. And God works for the good of all his children in all things. This means that the trials and tribulations and those things that cause us groaning, God is at work in those things. And in due time, the tangled chaos of our present lives, our difficulties, our disappointments, will be put in their proper place and perspective. It's in all these things that those who love Him and are called according to His purpose will experience His goodness. So the question to be asked is not, where is God in all this? But rather, the question to be asked is, where does my love lie in all this? Time restricts us from looking in greater detail at verses 31 to 39. But I don't think we can really leave this chapter without looking at Paul's questions. He gives three unanswered question, unanswerable questions. What then shall we say in response to these things? What then shall we, res- what shall we say in response to all these things? Well, it goes on to say, if God is for us, Who can be against us? If anyone seeks to cancel what God is doing in our life, they must be greater than God. And as God is the creator of all things, there isn't anything to combat God. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? He says in verse 33. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And as God is the judge, Paul's argument is that no prosecution can succeed because God has justified us. Christ continues to intercede for us. It is he who rescues by his death, resurrection and exaltation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? As John Stott puts it, we are climbing a grand staircase here, and this is the top step. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And as we move from groaning to glory, we can do so in the knowledge that in Jesus, you and I can be super conquerors. The Bible says, more than conquerors. All the listed possibilities in the remaining verses are real, unpleasant demeaning, hard to bear, and challenging. But God is with us, and I don't know what you're going through today in your lives. I don't know what problems might greet you tomorrow when you pull back the curtains and and see that I don't know that the dogs dug up half the garden or whatever it may be. I don't know what's going to happen. But if you are in Christ this evening you can be assured that God is working in your life. Challenging our faith, yes. It is a challenge to trust and to live in that hope that you have yet to see. But God is at work. We are called, the Bible tells us, Martin Lloyd-Jones says a wonderful uh, quote from his Bible, but basically he says that we are called, and being called is a little bit more than just becoming a Christian. Being called is a sense of standing in the wings and waiting for someone to call you, and you are called to make that move into Christianity wholeheartedly. We aren't just going through the process of becoming a Christian, because it sounds interesting. We are called according to his purpose. And we may not know the immediate, but we do know the ultimate, that nothing shall separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. And nothing, absolutely nothing, shall rob us of our eternal salvation. Our future in unimaginable glory. In eternal security. In the joy and closeness of God. Our God. So my question tonight is, where is my love in all this? Where is your love in all this? Are you in Christ Jesus? If so, that hope is yours to live in. Let's pray together. Almighty and eternal God, we thank you for your presence and and for this one true hope that we can all have. That you, O God, are the God of tomorrow. You, O God, are the God of today. You, O God, are the God of the eternal future. We thank you Lord, that you are the just God. And Father, as we go into this coming week, when there seems to be so much pressure around us and so much anguish, so much pain, Father, enable us to see that as we know the one who is behind the scenes, you are working behind the scenes to achieve your glory. So glorify your name, Lord, in each one of us, for we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.